0: After Christmas, so I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the kids. I'm going to enjoy Sunday school, and uh, I want to thank all the guys and g- gals who brave the elements here. Uh, I applaud all of you. Um, so glad that many people are here this morning. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Colossians that we're calling Alive in Christ. And and just to recap, the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians in order to help them maintain their focus on Jesus Christ. And as we'll see a a little bit later in this letter, Paul sees some tendencies within the Colossian church that may lead them off track spiritually. And like a loving father, Paul is hoping to gently correct the Colossians so that they might, may find their ultimate hope and joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. So uh, we'll be starting in Colossians chapter 1 verse, th- verse 15, so if you want to turn with me there, I'd greatly appreciate it. Last Sunday evening, I was out for a stroll with my wife, um, braving the elements, and we decided to walk by a movie store and rent a movie. Uh, So, we rented a movie that, uh, that truly inspired me. And I've seen a lot of movies. I've seen many movies, in fact. But this particular movie was an achievement in filmmaking. It was a movie that made every single movie that I'd ever seen in my life look like child's play. I was just kidding about it being spectacular, but it was a fun movie. Now, if you've seen Despicable Me, you'll know that these little yellow guys right here are called Minions, and they follow around a dude named Group. Now, this movie, Minions, is a prequel to the Despicable Me uh, movies, and it kind of digs into the history of these yellow guys. And the movie points out how Minions are always born to follow a leader. That's how they've always been from the moment they came into this earth. They were always born to follow a leader. And the movie goes, uh, goes on to explain that the Minions had many leaders throughout their history. They followed cavemen, they followed dinosaurs, they followed Napoleon. But when they don't have someone to follow, they become aimless and depressed. They don't know what to do with themselves, so they decide to send a few Minions out to go find them a leader. Now, it's a pretty fun movie, so I recommend you go and see it. But the analogy here, I think, is crystal clear. Unless we look to Jesus Christ as our ultimate leader, we're going to be dissatisfied and aimless, and we won't find any joy in anything else. And that's what our passage here today challenges us to do, to worship and to magnify the King and Creator of the universe who holds all things together and reigns over our hearts. So let me set up this text for you. As I mentioned last week, the Apostle Paul is impressed with the Colossians. He loves that they love their fellows and brothers and sisters in Christ. He loves that they're keeping to the faith. He loves that the gospel is growing among them. But he sees some tendencies within this body of believers that could derail them from their ultimate worship of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that we have no idea what Paul is trying to correct here. And scholars have poured over this letter for thousands of years to find out exactly what Paul's trying to correct, and they can't seem to find an answer. And most often, if you were to read books about Colossians, people most often refer to it as the Colossian heresy. Now, I personally think that the Colossian heresy is most likely a bunch of different wrong ideas about who Jesus really is, and it's leading the Colossians to have a worship problem. In other words, the Colossians didn't have their Christology right. And the text that we'll be looking at today is known as the Christ hymn of Colossians because in the Greek language it's beautiful, it's rich, it's poetic. And Paul points to Christ's kingship over the world and over the church and describes what Jesus does And who he is and what he means to us. And he's trying to enable the Colossians to get back on track. To find their ultimate hope and joy and satisfaction in King Jesus. That's my goal today. I want us to understand who Jesus Christ really is. So that we can put him first in every single thing that we say and do. But before I get into the text, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father... I thank you that we could come here together and worship together. I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to the different truths that you want us to learn this morning. If we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. So, Colossians chapter one, verse fifteen says this: "says The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation." Now, when Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's not saying that Jesus is somehow this human reflection of God himself. We know from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John ten thirty I and my Father are one. So what is Paul getting at here? How can Jesus be an image of the invisible God? If you think back to Genesis chapter 1 when God created Adam in his own image, he gave him authority over all creation to subdue it, to cultivate it, to govern it. And in a sense, this is the kind of authority that God has given human beings in general. God the king gave Adam the authority of a king to rule over all the earth. And what Paul is suggesting in our text is that Christ is an image of the king. He's a representation Of the king, and as such, he has the complete authority of a king. Jesus himself says, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." This leads us to the second part of the verse. It says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, upon first glance, this this can be just a little bit troubling, because there are some folks out there who claim to be Christians and yet believe, based on this verse right here. That Jesus is just a really good human being who was born just like everybody else. But this completely misunderstands what Paul is trying to get at here. Because firstborn language in the ancient world was language that referred to royalty and it referred to kingship. It is language used to describe somebody's kingly authority. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament, kings are referred to as the firstborn So for Paul to designate Christ as the firstborn over all creation is to designate him as the total sovereign, the one who wields all the power, the king not only of Israel, but the king of the entire universe. Christ is God's royalty and possesses complete and total authority over all of creation. So Jesus Christ is the king who has absolute, incomparable, and unequal authority over everything. And it's interesting how Paul fleshes this out in verse 16. He says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and he exercises a kingly function over all of creation. He has supremacy over the entire universe. But why? It's because he created the whole thing, everything that we can see and everything that we can't. Everything came from him and everything is for him. There is not a single atom or molecule in this entire creation or in your own body over which Christ does not have complete ownership. One of my favorite quotes of all time, and it's a quote that I have at the very end of all the emails I send, is from a guy named Abraham Kuyper, and it's this. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Why is it his? Because he created everything. And that's exactly what Paul says here. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. And he created everything and everything was made for his glory. Everything we see and everything that we don't testifies to his sovereign nature. You take all the creations that we're enthralled by, the horsehead nebula, mountains, oceans, cornfields, if you're into that. Everything testifies to his handiwork. And as a result, it gives him all the glory. But not only that, Paul goes on to reiterate just how majestic and powerful Christ's reign over all of creation really is. He says this. says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He precedes everything and he holds everything together together. I love it in John chapter 8, when Jesus is chatting with the Pharisees, and he says that Abraham longed to see me, and he rejoiced because he saw me. And the Pharisees are like, bro, you're not even 50 years old yet. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. So the Pharisees, they pick up stones because they obviously understood in their hearts that this was truth. And John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And John 1 verse 2 says, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. He creates all things, he precedes all things. But not only that, he sustains all things. Meaning he keeps everything together. It's exactly what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. It says he is the one who upholds the entire universe. What's interesting is that he's majestic over all creation. He rules everything. He holds everything together and yet he gets none of the credit. You Just look at CNN, look at Fox News, BBC, whatever. Look at the people they name all the time. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Ben Carson, Taylor Swift. People that most people look to for leadership and people whom others admire. But Jesus is the one who ordains all leaders and influencers in this country, and he causes them to succeed, and he causes them to fail. It is Jesus Christ who makes this world go round and round. He holds it all together, and yet He doesn't get any of the credit whatsoever. So the first thing that Jesus has preeminence over is creation. But the second thing that Jesus has preeminence over is the new creation, the church. Paul says this. He says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus Christ is the source of life for the church universal. He is the authority in the church. We don't look to Muhammad. We don't look to Moses. We look to Jesus Christ. We don't look to Ben Espinoza or any other religious or political leader. We look to Jesus Christ alone. And I'm thankful that this is a church that for its entire history has looked to Jesus Christ alone. Jesus shows us a better way of living all throughout the Gospels. He shows compassion and mercy to people who are in need. He fights injustice and oppression. He gives up his life for his friends. But he also points the way to the truth, which is himself. And as the church, we are to be heralds of Christ's truth, that he reigns not only in the church, but over the entire creation as well. Christ alone is our head. He empowers us to live the Christian life and he empowers us to reach out to our communities with love and with compassion and with mercy. He empowers us to seek justice for the oppressed and the marginalized and to proclaim the good news of himself to a lost and dying world. If we don't have Christ, we have nothing, folks. No direction, no peace, no life. So not only does Jesus Christ have supremacy over the created order, he has supremacy over the new creational reality, which is called the church. He's the beginning of the church. He is our founder. He is our model. He is our example. And he desires to be adored with every fiber of our beings. But not only this, he was the first one to be resurrected. He demonstrates his power to us by conquering death through his resurrection. And we know that as Christians, we're going to receive these new incorruptible bodies at a time when God only knows. And these immortal bodies will be much like the one that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. And it's in the power of his resurrection that Jesus proves his supremacy and his authority over everything, including death. Paul goes on to say this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is where we encounter God's presence God chose Jesus Christ to be the place where he would manifest himself and express himself to us. And it is through Jesus that we experience the peace and the reconciliation of God through his blood on the cross. And in our day and age, isn't peace and reconciliation what we need the most? If you've been following the news, you see ISIS all over the place. You see persecution. You see execution Of people who love Jesus all across the world. And some people say this is World War III happening right before our eyes. But we know that peace and reconciliation can only happen with Jesus Christ. We know that when all things are said and done on this earth. Jesus Christ himself will come again and make all things right. There will be no more war. No more tears, no more suffering, no more false worship. When he comes, he will restore this broken creation back to himself, and he will rightly sit on the throne where he belongs, and all of creation will bow the knee to him. So Jesus has preeminence over all of creation, and he reigns over the church. But Paul moves on to say what this means for us exactly. He says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Jesus, who is the king of the entire universe, has paid the penalty for our sins so that we're empowered to do good things on this earth. And spend eternity with him. Amen. Aren't you thankful that we serve a king. who was willing to lay down his life for us. Even though we wanted nothing to do with him. That is the God. Whom we worship. And it is the God who is making something beautiful. Out of all the brokenness that we see. In our world. But Paul goes on to finish. By saying this. That Christ has reconciled us. If. You continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And this is Paul's encouragement to the Colossians and to us to remain grounded in the gospel because the gospel is what gives us hope. And as I've said before, the gospel isn't just a step in a staircase. It's not the first step in a long staircase. The gospel is the staircase itself. And the more you grow in your knowledge and your love of Jesus Christ, the more you love the gospel and what it does, and the firmer you are in your faith. But the moment you start to take your eyes off of Jesus Christ, you start climbing down the staircase, and you begin to question whether or not this faith you had was ever real. And Paul knows that humans are prone to wander from idol to idol. But he encourages the Colossian church to remain grounded and to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. Because the less we do, the more likely we are to fix our eyes on someone or something else. Now what does this mean for covenant? We know that Jesus has has a supremacy over every single thing, over all of creation And over the church. He has incomparable authority over everything. And what does it mean for us today here in Bowling Green, Ohio? I think it means a few different things. The first thing I think it means is that we need to point our lives to the King. Now, I know many of us are very prone to say, well, I'm cool with Jesus. You know, we put Jesus first in our lives. And I'm sure we can say unwaveringly that we do in good conscience. But does your life point to him? Do the things that you do in all areas of your life attest to your love and your hope in Jesus? My guess is if we all took inventories of our lives and asked ourselves honestly if we point our lives to Jesus, the answer might be a very thin maybe or perhaps a very bold no. And that's not uncommon in the church. We're all works in progress. But as Christians, we're called to a life of putting Jesus first in every single thing that we do. And I want to challenge you this week. Wherever you go, whatever you do, ask yourself, is what I'm doing pointing to Jesus? Now, if you're going to the store, you're grabbing some laundry detergent, I'm not sure how that can point to Jesus. But the way you treat the guy who stole your parking spot, or the older lady who walks so slowly in front of you, does say something about the priorities of your life. So with wherever you go, whatever you do, ask yourself, am I pointing the way to Jesus Christ for all to see? I think you'll be surprised. I think it also means here that we need to put our hope in the King. Now I think this is where most of us fall short. It's easy for us to say that our hope is in Christ alone. But when it comes to putting our cards on the table... Our hope may actually be in something or someone else. Now again, you might be thinking, I, I do put my hope in Jesus Christ. But what does that mean exactly? It means that when everything else in your life doesn't go the way that you desire, you cling to your hope that Jesus is going to make something beautiful out of all the brokenness. In other words, if all the good things in your life were slowly stripped away, how would you feel? If you lost your job, would you still put your hope in Christ? If something were to happen to your family, would you still put your hope in Christ? If something happened to your health, would you still put your hope in Christ? It's the story of Job. And this is where idolatry comes in. And idolatry means worshiping something that is not Jesus Christ. And the way you can tell that you're idolizing something is by assessing your life and finding out where your ultimate hope and joy comes from. And chances are, if that thing that gives you hope and joy was taken away, how would you feel? If you lost your job, would you feel miserable because that was your idol? Or if something else happened, would you feel horrible because that was what you were worshiping? So we can say with our mouths that we put our hope in Jesus Christ alone, the king of the universe, but is he really the king of our hearts? It takes some serious self-assessment on our parts because it's so easy for us to follow other things. And Like I said, we're all works in progress, but Christ has called us to put him first in everything that we do. Amen? I think this passage also means that we need to proclaim the goodness of the king. We know that Jesus Christ created everything. We know that life comes from him and him alone. And as a church, it is our responsibility to be heralds of Christ's reign over the the entire creation. But What does that mean? How can we do this? We reach out to our neighbors, to our families and our friends. We're examples of how following Christ is life-giving and hope giving. This doesn't mean that we're going to go door to door preaching at our neighbors or whatever, but rather that the gospel should so consume our hearts that we cannot help talk about Jesus and everything that we do or model Jesus and everything in our daily lives. Here at Covenant, we talk a lot about living on mission. and That's great, but living on mission can't be the sole focus of your life jesus is and the more you love jesus you trust in him you put your hope in him the more likely you are to share jesus with everybody around you so as you go about your week ask yourself this is jesus the king of my heart because if he's not then he needs to be because you will find no satisfaction apart from him Because he is the one who has given us new life through his death on the cross. And that's what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate that the king has laid down his life so that we can have life abundant and eternal. We celebrate that all of our sin and all of our brokenness is taken care of by his death. And we celebrate that we no longer live in the kingdom of darkness But we live in the kingdom of light through his death on the cross. When we take communion, we celebrate all that the king has done, is doing, and will do for us. So I'm going to invite the worship team up here. And as we begin to worship together, I'd encourage you to come up here. Take a piece of bread that represents his broken body. Dip it into the cup that represents his shed blood. And remember who Jesus is. And if you're led, I'd encourage you to come here to the front and pray because we all need to put the king first in our lives. Will you stand with me as I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive us for the ways that we forget to put you first. I pray that as we worship together, as we take communion, that you'll open our hearts to you even more. That we put to death all the things that don't come from you and find our ultimate hope and satisfaction and life in you alone. As we go throughout our week, Lord, help us to know you, the King, and make you known. Proclaiming your reign over this entire creation. Proclaiming your reign over this entire church. And proclaiming your reign over our hearts, Lord. Help us to be heralds of your kingship over all of this creation, Lord. For you've given us everything, everything, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.